From NPR News, it's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the election season heats up, food and biotechnology companies are spending millions of dollars to try to defeat a ballot initiative in Oregon. The first in the nation measure would require labels for genetically engineered foods. The federal government says biotech food is safe, and the companies say labeling would hurt business. But supporters of the measure say consumers should have a right to choose. I have a lot of friends who are vegetarians. They want to know that they are getting lettuce and not lettuce with rat DNA in it or broccoli with rat DNA or tomatoes with flounder DNA. Also the downside of up close and personal livestock farming. I'm going to miss my steer because I worked with them all summer long and you just get attached to them and it's hard to let them go. I'm going to cry. That and more this week on Living on Earth right after this. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. With the balance of power between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate hanging on just one seat, every Senate race this November counts. And in Colorado, the contest between Republican incumbent Wayne Allard and Democratic challenger Tom Strickland is particularly strident. Polls have the two candidates in a virtual dead heat. And the environment may be the key as to how voters decide. Susan Green covers politics for the Denver Post. Susan, why has the environment emerged as an issue in this election? Well, the environment is always pretty big in Colorado. We've got a huge segment of the population that moved here for the mountains, for the national parks, the open space, and hundreds of thousands of Coloradans who make their living off the state's natural resources by ranching, mining, farming, skiing, rafting, etc. In this race, I think that by all accounts, it may come down to the state's independents, who make up about a third of the registered voters in Colorado, and new residents who are said to be largely moderate Republicans who likely moved here for environmental reasons and and may sort of embrace environmental causes. Republican Wayne Allard is campaigning by claiming to have a strong environmental record. What do people say about his environmental record? First of all, what he says about his environmental record is that it's great and that he's the most green senator ever to represent Colorado. He makes a lot of his work passing legislation to designate Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant near Denver as a wildlife refuge. It's been decommissioned for years. And he makes a lot out of his work helping to designate the Great Sand Dunes National Park and the Spanish Peaks Wilderness Area, which are both in southern Colorado. He's also done work on helping to clean up a place called Shattuck. It's a hazardous waste dump in Denver. So all of those things have won support among some environmentalists, although they point out some downsides as well. On Rocky Flats, some say the wildlife designation is a ploy by the government to avoid totally cleaning up the plutonium and the uranium there. On the sand dunes, many people note it won't officially become a national park until it acquires more land from a program which Allard has not supported. On Shattuck, I think that's one of his more solid claims on the environment. And he was really on Shattuck, many say, far before any of our local you know, Democratic Congress people were actually on the issue. Looking at uh, his broad voting record, where does uh, Senator Allard stand on the environment? First of all, Allard is chairman of the Senate Renewable Energy Caucus, and Colorado is home to the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden. And while Allard recently voted to secure, I think, 15% budget increase for the lab, 
He's voted against things like improving fuel economy standards for cars and trucks and helped block a requirement that 20% of utilities energy comes from renewable sources. He also opposed a plan to triple the content of ethanol in fuel, and that was very controversial in Colorado, not only among environmentalists, but also the farming community, because ethanol comes from corn, and that's one of our biggest crops. I know Senator Allard has gotten into a bit of a scuffle this fall with the, the environmental advocacy group, the Sierra Club. What's going on? Well, in touting himself as the most environmental senator in Colorado's history, Allard has made a big deal about having received in the mail a membership card from the Sierra Club. And he's carried it around with him and said, if his record's so bad, why would they want him as a member? This was a solicitation that went to millions of Americans nationwide, and you're supposed to send in your $25 for an actual membership. Carl Pope, the executive director of the Sierra Club, was in town recently and whipped out a membership card of his own. Um, It was a platinum membership with the Republican National Committee, congratulated him for upholding the party's ideals. Pope's a Democrat and said he's no more an exemplary supporter of Republican values than Allard is an environmentalist. So environmental groups are endorsing the Democratic challenger, Tom Strickland, in Colorado, but he doesn't have an extensive public record on the environment. What was he able to do as United States attorney when he was in office? Well, he was United States attorney for the last two years of the Clinton administration, and he prosecuted a few cases against polluters. But really, his focus as U.S. attorney was mostly on guns, not on environment. What he did before that, when he was working as a private attorney, he was heavily involved in a 1992 ballot initiative to create something called Great Outdoors Colorado. It's an agency that takes lottery money in the state and buys parks and open space. One thing that sticks in the craw of environmentalists is his record as a private lawyer and lobbyist. He represented a company that sought to build a medical waste incinerator in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Denver, even though neighbors objected. And he also represented Louisiana Pacific, which was fined for environmental violations at a lumber mill in western Colorado. So, uh, Susan, what do you think are the biggest environmental topics that will be at issue as this campaign heads into the final weeks? One huge one is fire. As you know, we had a horrible fire season in Colorado this year. Both candidates support plans to thin forest and reduce the kindling in the national forests, but they disagree on how to do it. Allard supports a plan that would cut down far more trees and, and far more acreage than Strickland supports. Also related to the fire season is the drought. This was the driest summer in more than 150 years in Colorado. Huge reservoirs were nearly depleted as early as July. Crops suffered. Lawns throughout the state went brown. And all this called attention to a lack of a statewide water policy in Colorado, which is not something that a senator has authority over, but both have called for a statewide water policy, even though Strickland has done so much more loudly. Why is this race so close, Susan? I mean, typically an incumbent has a lot of advantages going into an election. Why are things so tight? And how much does the environment have to do with it? Some people say if the Democrats have any challenge in this election, it's to appear strong on the economy, which people are obviously concerned about. And if Republicans have a challenge, it's to appear environmental. And basically, you've seen the Sierra Club, you've seen the League of Conservation Voters, the Democratic Party, and Strickland's campaign blasting Allard on his environmental record. And to some degree, that may have been successful. Susan Green is a staff writer with the Denver Post. Thanks for taking this time with us today, Susan. Thanks for having me.
Oregon could become the first state in the United States to require labels on genetically engineered food. Ballot Measure 27 will put the matter to voters in November. The campaign has been intense, with biotechnology and food companies spending millions of dollars on advertising. Henry Sessions has our report. Donna Harris is a busy mom. At a Portland cafe on a brief break from the campaign, she says she got the idea for Measure 27 when she had her second child two years ago. She wanted to avoid foods with genetically engineered materials. We called formula companies. We called cereal companies. Nobody、uh, could give us an answer. They gave us a scripted message that was may or may not contain genetically engineered food. If it does, it's an insignificant amount, and it falls under FDA guidelines. Harris says Measure 27 is designed to address that lack of information. It would require growers, processors, and distributors to label not only genetically engineered potatoes or fish, but any food containing GE ingredients such as corn syrup or cake mix. The one thing that was really important to me was, for example, if a tomato contained flounder DNA, that that be on there. And I think that's important. I have a lot of friends who are vegetarians. They want to know that they are getting. Lettuce and not lettuce with rat DNA in it, or broccoli with rat DNA, or tomatoes with flounder DNA. GE food labeling isn't a new idea. The European Union requires it, as does Japan and several other countries. And despite a starving population, the southern African nation of Zambia is refusing to accept shipments of genetically modified corn. But in Oregon, the idea of labeling GE foods is leaving a bad taste in the mouths of some food processors, farmers, and others. The way it's written, it goes well beyond what、uh, seems like any kind of a reasonable proposal, and means that virtually all the foods that we see in stores is going to have labels on it. Pat McCormick is a Portland lobbyist representing a food industry group calling itself the Coalition Against the Costly Food Labeling Initiative. They've recently gotten an infusion of money from outside the state. The Food and Drug Administration has made absolutely clear that these foods are no different and just as safe as their conventionally bred counterparts, and there's no reason to separately label them. In fact, putting labels on them would be misinterpreted by consumers as a warning when there is no reason in the Food and Drug Administration's mind to provide any warning, since they believe these foods to be safe. McCormick points out that new national organic standards, which take effect later this month, already ban GE ingredients. So consumers can avoid GE foods by buying organic. Sitting on the sidelines of this campaign are Oregon's big natural foods retailers. Wild Oats Markets, with more than a hundred stores in two dozen states, owns ten stores in Oregon. On bulletin boards and in publications, Wild Oats has been at the forefront in informing customers in the debate over GE foods. Mark Cockroft, regional marketing manager. Pulls a bag of Wild Oats pasta off the shelf and points out that for their house brand, Wild Oats has switched to suppliers who don't use genetically engineered ingredients. But Cockcroft says Oregon's labeling initiative poses a problem for a national company like his. It's a controversial issue, and there's not a lot of、uh, concrete scientific evidence out there. And really, in the end, our position comes down to the right of the customer to make an informed choice. However, on this matter. We really support a national labor law, not a state's labor law. No polling numbers have yet been released on the measure, but independent political analyst Jim Moore says the initiative might well strike a chord with Oregon's notoriously independent voters. If 
we see the big food companies, if we see, for instance, ads by ConAgra or Archer Daniels Midland or things like that coming in, there's a real chance that Oregonians could say, you know, we aren't quite sure about this GMO thing, but we're not going to have those big people from Nebraska or Colorado telling us what to do. If Measure 27 passes, it wouldn't be the first time Oregon has gone its own way. Among many other firsts, voters here passed the nation's first bottle deposit and land use planning laws in the 1970s. For Living on Earth, I'm Henry Sessions in Portland, Oregon. Coming up, the fiscal crunch faced by national parks. First, this environmental health note from Diane Toomey. 50 million people worldwide are chronically infected with hepatitis B, a virus that can lead to liver damage and even cancer. A full three quarters of those live in Asia, and many of them are treated with Chinese herbal medicine. Studies that gauge the effectiveness of this treatment for hepatitis rarely get published in English language journals. So scientists at the University of California, Berkeley, analyzed research that appeared in Chinese language journals. They reviewed more than two dozen studies in which one group of patients used herbal medicine alone or in combination with interferon, a standard hepatitis treatment. That group was compared to patients who just received interferon. All the studies evaluated patients after three months of treatment by measuring their level of viral activity. Researchers found the most effective treatment appeared to be a combination of Western and herbal medicine. In three standard blood tests, the patients who received both those treatments were up to twice as likely to have reached an undetectable level of virus compared to patients who received interferon alone. While the Berkeley researchers found these results promising, they did have some major criticisms of the Asian scientist methodology. So they say they plan to help train a group of Chinese clinicians on how to conduct more rigorous experiments in the future. That's this week's Health Note. I'm Diane Toomey. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Six years ago, this week, Carl Ludwig Nessler placed an ad in London's Hairdressers Journal. He invited leading hairdressers to, quote, inspect and judge a lady's hair waved permanently by his newly invented and greatly improved process that would withstand water, shampoo, and all atmospheric influences. It was the world's first perm. And Mr. Nessler accomplished the effect by winding hair tightly around brass rods that weighed as much as two pounds apiece and connecting the curlers to an electric power source. The whole shebang looked like a huge milking machine hung from the ceiling, and it worked by using heat and a highly alkaline solution to break the chemical bonds that give the hair its shape. Then an acidic solution reformed the hair's bonds so it stayed curly permanently. The perm's popularity peaked in the 1960s, but last year Americans still spent almost $9 billion on salon curls and hair straightening treatments. Studies say the chemicals used in today's perms are relatively safe. The most typical adverse health effects are skin irritation and allergies. The search is on for a chemical-free perm recipe, but so far natural ingredients haven't been able to hold their own against Mr. Nestler's formula. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac.
While he was running for president, George W. Bush pledged nearly $5 billion to repair the nation's parks. And this year, Congress is debating a big increase for long-needed maintenance. To assess the need, we sent reporter Sandy Hausman to Glacier National Park in Montana, a million acres of snow-capped mountains, deep green valleys, and clear cold streams. You might call it calendar country, but observers say it's also a poster child for the Park Service, proof of serious, even dangerous neglect. Hello, fine. Do you need any current information? Yes, that'd be great if we could get a, uh, a brochure and newspaper. Our visitor center is in Apgar, two miles ahead of town. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Every year, nearly one and a half million Americans drive through Glacier National Park on a remarkable 50-mile road built in the 1920s and 30s. The Going to the Sun Highway is considered an engineering marvel. It clings to the side of the mountain, rising from 3,000 to 6,600 feet above sea level to cross the Continental Divide. Building this road was such dangerous and delicate work, it probably wouldn't be done today. But 21st century visitors are glad it's here. Greg Myers stopped to admire the view after driving in from Madison, Wisconsin, on his Harley. Definitely worth a 2,000-mile trip just to go up and down that hill once, put it that way. Uh, I don't know, this is the second time we've taken it, and it gets better every time. Uh, you got to remember to watch where you're going as well as watch the mountains. Otherwise, you end up in trouble. Right off the edge. Huh? Right off the edge. Visitors here sometimes see bighorn sheep, mountain goats, and grizzlies. Park literature warns tourists of the potential risk posed by bears, but there is no warning about what may be a more serious threat to public safety. Water is everywhere, eroding the ground under this road and setting rocks free above it. Several years ago, a Japanese tourist was killed when a boulder fell on his car. And Fred Babb, chief of project management at Glacier, says the risk is constant. Every day, the Park Service has one gentleman that goes the entire length of the road just sweeping stone off the road. If he didn't do that in a matter of a week, the sections of the road would be completely covered by stone and not passable. Snow is also a problem during Montana's long, cold winters. Steve Thompson, local program manager for the National Parks Conservation Association, leans over a cliff and stares at a pile of rocks below. Looks like there was probably an avalanche came through there not too long ago and uh, just took that retaining wall right over the edge. So in the summer and fall, crews are busy restoring the road. About a mile below the highway summit, two men are standing on a platform hanging over the edge of a cliff, suspended from a crane. Construction worker Bruce Wan says they're replacing the mortar in the guard wall, and this is the only way to reach it. And then we got guys on the ropes to keep them from swinging around if the wind comes up, which it does up here. And uh, the other hazards we have to deal with are uh, lightning. The crane is a giant lightning rod. And if we get a lightning strike in the area, then we have to shut down. All total, six men will need about a month to fix 150 feet of wall. One stretch of wall in one national park. One reason why park repairs can be costly. Near the end of the Going to the Sun Road on the east side of Glacier stands a historic lodge named for the surrounding ice and snow. The Many Glacier Hotel, with its large, friendly lobby, is one of three chalets built by the Great Northern Railway to attract park visitors. In 1915, when the hotel opened, it was a bastion of elegance for the adventurous traveler willing to make the trek by train and horseback. 
Today, the lodge draws as many as 700 guests a night from around the world. But manager Don West says some are disappointed by conditions here. Last year, at this time, if you would have walked down the hallway, you would get vertigo because it was so much slanted in. It was falling into this lake. Money for repairs finally arrived after members of Congress held a hearing in the lodge and saw the slanted hallways peeling paint and frayed carpets. But Congress has not yet funded road repair. That's a tougher sell, says Steve Thompson. You know, when people come to visit the park, they're focused in on the beauty of the park and they want to see a bear. And they're not thinking about, you know, sort of what makes it all run. The backlog of basic maintenance projects, such as the Going to the Sun Road, is about $5 billion. That's why his group has joined with local chambers of commerce, national environmental groups, service organizations, even the Girl Scouts, to form a parks advocacy group, Americans for National Parks. But some people don't share their view that Congress should pay to keep the parks in good repair. Instead, economist Randall O'Toole thinks the Park Service should raise admission fees, charging per person per day. Right now, visitors pay just $10 per car per week at Glacier. How much do you pay to go see a two-hour movie? How much do you pay to rent a video? Paying 3 to $5 per person per day to visit a national park is still pretty cheap. He also thinks the Park Service should be more selective about acquiring new buildings and property. For example, when the giant Presidio military base in San Francisco was given to the Park Service, it came with about 500 historic buildings and manicured grounds that are extremely expensive to maintain. It's nice to have that 1,480 acres if you live in San Francisco. It's essentially a city park. enhances the property values of people in San Francisco, but it doesn't really benefit people anywhere else in the country. O'Toole calls this park barrel and refers to the National Pork Service when he suggests that no tax dollars be used to fund places like Glacier and the Presidio. As the debate continues, Congress is set to approve about $130 million more than the Clinton administration did to reduce the maintenance backlog. That does not include major road work. Congress will look at that next year when it considers funding for the nation's highways. But with some Montana clout on the Senate Appropriations Committee, Glacier is hopeful that money to rebuild the Going to the Sun Highway will come through in 2004. For Living on Earth, I'm Sandy Hausman in Whitefish, Montana. A research letter in a recent issue of the journal The Lancet corroborates the notion that children who grow up on farms have fewer allergies because they are exposed to a lot of microbes in the soil. Country kids play in dirt, dig in dirt, and sometimes love to eat dirt. Not all of them outgrow the urge. And that brings us to a poem by Rebecca McClanahan. She writes about one southern woman who gave up eating dirt for her husband. It's called Something Calling My Name. I try to tell him, but he won't hear. Earl, I say, it's safe, it's clean, if you dig below where man has been deep to the first blackness. I tell him, but he won't hear. Says my mouth used to taste like mud, made him want to spit. I try to tell him how fine it was. When I was big with Earl Jr. and Shad, I laid on my back, My belly all swelled like the high dirt hills sloping down to the bank above the gravel road by Mama's. And I dream it, rich and black after rain, like something calling my name. 
I say, Earl, remember that spring in Chicago? I thought I'd die, my mouth all tasteless, waiting for Wednesdays, shoeboxes full of the smell of home. The postman, he'd scratch his head, but he kept on bringing. Bless Mama, she baked it right, the way I like, vinegar sprinkled and salt. I'd carry it in the little red pouch or loose in my apron pocket. And when the day got too long and dry, and Earl home too late for lovin', I'd have me a taste. It saved me, it did. And when we finally made it back, the smell of Alabama soil poured itself right through me. I sang again, and things were fine, till the night he leaned back and said, No more. His man smells all rich and mixed up with evening. Right there, Layin' by me, he made me choose between his kisses and my clay. Now afternoons when it gets too much, I reach for the stuff he gave me. Baking soda, starch, I've tried it all, but I don't hold with it. It crunches good, but it's all bleached out and pasty. It just don't take the place. Earl, I say, I've given it up. And right then, I have. But sometimes on summer nights like this, when the clouds hang heavy and I hear that first rumble, and the earth peels itself back and the crust darkens, and the underneath soil bubbles up damp and flavored, it all comes back. And I believe I'd do anything to kneel at that bank above the gravel road by Mama's and dig in deep till my arms are smeared and scoop it wet to my mouth. Rebecca McClanahan is a writer who lives in New York City. Her latest collection of essays is called The Riddle Song and Other Rememberings. Time for comments from you, our listeners. Our coverage of the World Summit on Sustainable Development included a story about South Africa's proposed pebble-bed nuclear generators. Reuven N.F. Shalom heard the program on WUNC from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He says the issue of how the spent fuel would be dealt with was given short shrift in the story. The biggest problem with nuclear energy, Mr. N. Shalom writes, is the waste it produces and how to dispose of it. Jenny Oppenheimer heard the story on KQED in San Francisco and emailed us to say that we should have included more voices of nuclear critics. Of all the exciting, sustainable, clean technologies on the forefront of development, she wrote, I was disappointed by your choice of what to highlight. Our report on the military's request to be exempted from some environmental protection laws drew this comment from WQCS listener Marty Bergoffin from Asheville, North Carolina. He writes, The Department of Defense and the Armed Services have demonstrated very convincingly over the past 30 years that they can both comply with environmental laws and still be the best and most ready military force. We would be well served to remember the words of Dwight D. Eisenhower, who cautioned, The problem with defense is how far can you go without destroying from within that which you are trying to protect from without. And Dan Hutsley, another North Carolina listener who hears us on WUNC in Chapel Hill, says our profile of mockingbird scientist Cheryl Logan prompted him to report that mockingbirds that frequent a patio at his office have a new song in their repertoire. Bitzer Hutsley says he's been outside when a mockingbird lets out a song that sounds like a cell phone ringing. 
It's interesting to see that people look around for the cell phone, only to see it coming from the trees. You can make our phones ring anytime by calling our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. You can also write us at letters at LOE.org. Once again, letters at LOE.org. And visit our webpage at LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Japanese Zen gardens are landscaped with rake gravel and carefully placed rocks and moss. And although they look sparse and bare, these can have a strong, calming effect, as I found out once when I visited the Rianji Zen Garden in Kyoto a few years ago. Now a team of scientists is saying that the rocks and moss there conceal an image of a tree that exists only in our minds. Gert van Tander, a visual cognitive researcher at Kyoto University, explains what happened when his team started doing mathematical computations with the patterns in the garden. I first thought I would just get a scattered pattern of lines going off into various directions, but it turns out that the medial axis lines in the simulation form a converging pattern and um, it converges onto the main viewing area, uh, the veranda in the temple. And um, this converging structure resembles a tree. We did a number of um, analysis on, on these branches. And for example, we found that if anybody would just randomly throw the rocks onto that piece of gravel, they wouldn't nearly come close to finding such a nice converging tree structure. How would you explain this to our listeners? How do you explain the idea of seeing a tree in negative space? Try to imagine to see a tree that's invisible except for its leaves. So in a similar way, in the garden here, the rocks form the leaves of this invisible tree. And um, while you're not necessarily aware of it, the branches and the trunk is right there in front of you. How much do you think the designers of this garden uh, were aware uh, or knew about the subconscious picture that they were creating? Well, I think we would be a bit reluctant to say that they consciously thought of a tree structure and then went ahead with the design. But they must have had a very um, highly developed or sophisticated intuition of their own subconscious perception so that they could adjust the rocks and thereby also this invisible tree until it felt just right. How important is it for the calming effect that a tree is the image that's implied? Well, I think I can only answer with a puzzle. (laughs) The image of a tree in Buddhism is important in the story about the moment when the Buddha finds enlightenment, and he does so at the foot of a tree. So um, that could be a possible clue for people who want to think about this. Thanks for speaking with us today. It's a pleasure. Gert van Tander researches human visual cognition at Kyoto University. To see the results of his work at the Rianji Zen Garden, go to our website at LOE.org. That's LOE.org. Just ahead, the pleasures and perils of the end of summer fair. First, this page from the Animal Notebook with Maggie Villiger. 
loud is a good way to get your message heard. Just listen to the racket a tiny cricket can make. But if you listen to sound at this level for too long, you run the risk of deafening yourself and missing important sounds in your environment. Now scientists have figured out how crickets stop their ears from being blown out. A particular part of the insect's brain is responsible. When a cricket sings its rhythmic song, it's thanks to an impulse sent out by the region of its brain called the central pattern generator. This network of neurons sends out two copies of its message at the exact same time. One is sent to the cricket's muscles, telling the wings to rub together and generate the noise. At the same time, another dampening signal goes to the part of the brain that processes auditory input. So at the same moment the muscles get the message to sing, the auditory system gets the message to shut down. In between its bursts of song, the cricket's hearing returns to 100% so he can hear other sounds around him, hopefully the approach of a romantic female. That's this week's Animal Note. I'm Maggie Villiger. And you're listening to Living on Earth. If there is one rite of passage for farming kids as they head from the summer into the fall, it has to be the local fair. And this year, despite widespread drought that's forced many farmers to sell off their herds, 4-H youth still spent months preparing their livestock for competition. Producer Bill George caught up with the Schweitzer family at this year's Arkansas Valley Fair in Rocky Ford, Colorado, to bring us this sound portrait. My name is Arlene Schweitzer. I live here in Rocky Ford, Colorado. We live on a farm and ranch. It's been a very, really tough year, very tough year. My husband and I never thought it would be as dry as it is. At our county fair, we see a lot of positive things going on. We see kids that are happy. You see kids that are excited about to show their animals. And I think it's, um, it'll be important for us to see that because it's been pretty devastating. Um, farmers are not wanting to talk about how dry it is because that's all we've heard for about the last five months. And you just get tired of hearing about it. So I think the fair will be exciting. My name is Chris, and this is my brother Andy, and he is older than me. Right now, in the barn, it gets really loud because I have sheep and goats and steers who get really, really wild, and it gets kind of exciting because the steers get ready to run. I'm going to fall over and die if he weighs over 1,300. 1428. My black steer... He weighed 1428 and he started at 695. So he gained 700 and some pounds. And I got second rate to gain. What that means, what they do is they take the, all the stuff and they divide it and they figure out how much they gain per day. And I think my steer gained like three something per day. My name is Michelle Schweitzer and I'm Andy and Chris's sister. and. I took the week off so I could help them at the fair and get things lined up for them. I showed steers down here for nine years, and I always loved the fair. It was like the best part of my summer. It's kind of nerve-wracking sometimes, but it's still fun. It's exciting to see your brothers do good. 
worsen our steers to get them ready for showmanship uh, class. We have a drought this year, so you can't wash your steers twice or three times. You can only wash them once. I'm brushing my steers' hair forward, and we're putting stuff on their hair to make it stay where it's at. It uh, makes the hair stick out more, so they look pretty. On my black steer, we're going to paint some of his back legs black because he had some skin rubbed raw. I'm really nervous. Brush! I have to remind them because they're younger. They haven't been doing it as, as long as I have, and because they're boys. Good luck, Chris. Good luck, Andy. Hey. That will take us down to the junior showmanship contest here. Today is Andrew Schweitzer, Chris Schweitzer, Lacey Hood. Andy, look at the judge, look at the judge. Let's give all these young YouTubers a round of applause. Ladies and gentlemen, your grand champion junior showman this year goes to Jason Russell. Reserve Grand Champion, Lacey Hood. Third was Andrew Schweitzer. Fourth, Chris Schweitzer. Fifth, AJ. That's all right. They're here to learn. You know, win or lose, you're here to learn. But you did a good job, Chris. I thought you did a very nice job. I'm going to miss my steer because I worked with them all summer long. And you just get attached to them and it's hard to let them go. I'm going to cry. Probably. Second high gaining steer right here, Andrew Schweitzer, ladies and gentlemen. Five, six hundred, six, now seven, six hundred, now seven, now seven, seven, six hundred, now seven, seven, now eight, 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 eight. Our sound portrait of the Schweitzer family at the annual Arkansas Valley Fair in Rocky Ford, Colorado, was produced by Bill George. We hear a lot about the demise of the family farm. And it's true that corporate agriculture owns most of America's farm acreage. But if you look at the numbers of farms, 98% are still owned by families, according to the federal government. That means from Almock, Washington to Swainsboro, Georgia, perhaps 2 million people wake up each morning and step outside to work with their sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, husbands, and wives. We don't often hear about their struggles. But for two years, Robin White has been following a farm family in California where the stress that comes from working with your relatives is pretty close to the surface. When Ted Buckland returned to the tight fields of vegetables and flowers at Oak Hill Farm in Sonoma County, he knew nothing about running the place. He was studying for a master's in social work when he got a call from his mother. His stepfather had died, and the family was deciding how to run the farm. It sits under an oak-covered mountain in the heart of the wine country. Pretty soon, Ted found himself supervising 13 employees, some of whom had been on the farm half his life. Well, this is Chewy Soto. Chewy's been working at Oak Hill Farm for 20... How many years, Chewy? 22 years. In the cutting room, three men are clipping the ends off flowers and tying them into bunches. Ted introduces them by full name, and then he points up 
You look on the ceiling, you can see all the status and corn and different flowers that we dry going upstairs in the barn here. You can see more flowers, and then there's boxes of flowers. And so year-round, we're always sort of chasing after this, you know, this rainbow of stuff that's growing on the farm. If Ted Buckland sounds a little overwhelmed, it's probably because he's had to learn the business quickly, and he's made some big mistakes. His mother hired him. He may not have been the best man for the job, but family farmers often put family ties first, especially when they're short of cash. When Ted took over, the farm was losing $60,000 a year. He increased efficiency and fired some longtime employees. That's the hardest thing I've had to do. We're talking about families that lived on the farm for 15 to 20 years, children who were born on this farm who had to move. This was their home. Ugh. The firings led to protest among the employees. Out in the fields, Chewy Soto is in charge. Chewy says Ted tried to move too fast. At the beginning, it was kind of hard. Uh, he wanted this place to change dramatically, and he thought it would be changing like that. I say, well, you know, it's not going to happen just suddenly, you know. Yeah, we have hard times. Uh, uh, I'll tell you, I once or twice I was ready to quit because we couldn't communicate. Ted was risking one of his best employees. But it wasn't just the workers who were upset. Some of the customers at the farm's store were friends of the fired workers. In this small agricultural county, everyone is tied to everyone else, and word got round. It was so unsettling that pretty soon Ted's own job was on the block. Hello? Mother? Uh, can I come in about 15 minutes? Mom has been... To the point of such dissatisfaction with me that she fired me, and I just refused. <laughs> I said, no way, and you're a fool for trying to. <laughs> and since then, I've actually convinced her that she was wrong. <laughs> and Teller is Ted's mother. We have made a lot of mistakes. And some of, it, some of the mistakes we've made together, and some we've made in opposition to one another. And um, I'm sure it's true in any family. You know, blood and money doesn't always mix. If you spend any time in farming communities, you start to hear stories of brothers who farm next to each other but don't speak anymore because of old arguments. And it's not uncommon for older farmers to have trouble letting go of the reins. Steve Schwartz is with FarmLink, a Sacramento organization which helps farmers transfer property to the next generation. The best story, I think, was a dairy farmer, and he said, you know, I'm, my son, uh, I'm really looking forward to him taking over the farm. He's a great dairyman. He's good with the cows, but he's just not good with the books, so he's really not ready to take over the farm yet. So it turns out this farm is 87, and his son's 65. Schwartz says poor communication is all too familiar for families working together. We talked to a guy who literally had a 45-second conversation with his mother, you know, 15 years ago, and um, she said, I don't think there's room for you here. And he took that to mean, I better go move off soon and take my family and rent somewhere and do my farming elsewhere. And that's not exactly what she meant. Chewy Soto understands the differences between things said and things understood. The workers he manages at Oak Hill Farm are his own relatives, another family on this farm. He likes the confidence of hiring family, but sometimes he has to say hard things. If we take this outside of, outside of work, it can, it can be tough, you know. He's my uncle, he's my cousin, he's my brother-in-law. And, uh, sometimes if I 
if I'm hard on them or for whatever reason, you know, I go out there and, you know, apologize and, you know, this is work-related and don't take it personal, you know. If disputes are allowed to rankle, it sometimes takes a long time to get over them. One farming family with a lot of history is the Hansons of Selma, California. On a walk around his peach orchard, farmer and writer Victor Hanson points out an old white hay barn. Barns are kind of strange. I see them all over. There's one over there. They have no shape that's of any value. There are no draft horses needing hay these days, and the barns are no longer much used, but people still hold on to them. It's the same with family feuds. Back in his old farmhouse, Victor tells of grudges that went back four generations. I was told that when my great-great-grandmother died, now this must have been about 1877, one of the brothers walked into this very house and hadn't seen her for 30 years and stripped all the rugs out of the house and then demanded his land. I have no idea if that's true, but my side of the family told me that, and I was not to like that side of the family. A few years ago, Victor made his own brother angry by writing a book about their farm. His brother found the book too close to the bone, and the men didn't speak for two years. Only later, the brothers began talking again. They still had things in common. 120 years on a farm, there's depressions, there's war, there's people who've been killed, there's incidents like that, and they pack, come and go. Back at Oak Hill Farm, things have also come full circle. Ann Teller has more or less stepped down. And one by one, Ted's brother and his sisters have returned from living across the country. Together, they've launched a new venture. They've always grown grapes, but they used to sell them to Ravenswood, who turned them into a famous Zinfandel. Now the Bucklands have decided to make their own wine. This is our first bottling. And we sort of have it down. We're having fun. I'm really enjoying this. Yesterday we made a thousand boxes. It's kind of fun being part of a family machine. Will Buckland is the vintner. Kate and Arden and their friends are also here giving up their weekend to bottle the new wine. I'm a, a sister. I'm a, a member of the family. One of the, there are four of us. Are there so, four of you? Yeah. Okay, so you're the last. last well, I'm actually the second, here. if you must yeah. know. <laughs> Will's the last. Uh huh. Ted is the oldest? Ted's the eldest, yeah. Yeah. Really obvious. <laughs> we do whatever Ted tells us. That's not true. The cap on the new wine bottle is inscribed with B to the power of four for the four Buckland siblings. Kate Buckland says most families are not as close as they are. We've really grown as a family. Whereas I don't think most families have that opportunity to really go through and one by one knock off the big problems. The farm ties the family together, and for all the hardships, the Bucklands and the Hansons say they wouldn't do anything else. For Living on Earth, I'm Robin White in Sonoma. Thank you.
it for this week. That's Living on Earth. Next week, how a good thing went bad when the government moved in to clean up pollution from a Montana silver mine. God damn it, don't misunderstand me, okay? The original EPA guys that came up here to do this cleanup were decent, honorable people. What you got now is a bunch of little Gestapo, and I, I would not suggest that anybody not use any means available constitutionally or otherwise to oppose them. Overcoming the Superfund stigma next time on Living on Earth. And don't forget that between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can hear our program anytime on our website. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. And while you're online, send your comments to us at letters at LOE.org. Once again, letters at LOE.org. Our postal address is 8 Story Street, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02138. And you can reach our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs, tapes, and transcripts are $15. Before we go, a few more crickets, some frogs, and other various nocturnal creatures that live near the foot of Mount Basavi in Papua New Guinea. Stephen Feld made this recording he calls Nulu Night. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. You can find us at www.loe.org. Our staff includes Anna Solomon Greenbaum, Jennifer Chu, and Cynthia Graber, along with Al Avery, Susan Shepard, Jessica Penny, and Carly Ferguson. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. We had help this week from Andrew Strickler and Nicole Giese. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Ear. Our technical director is Chris Engels. Ingrid Lobet heads our Western Bureau. Diane Toomey is our science editor. Eileen Belinsky is our senior editor. And Chris Ballman is the senior producer of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues, the National Science Foundation supporting environmental education, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, supporting the Living on Earth Network, Living on Earth's expanded Internet service, the Educational Foundation of America for coverage of energy and climate change, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation for reporting on marine issues, the W. Alton Jones Foundation, supporting efforts to sustain human well-being through biological diversity, www.wajones.org, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of marine issues, and the Town Creek Foundation. 
This is NPR, National Public Radio.